0: This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com nascar pole position is the only print magazine covering nascar officially licensed by nascar nascar pole position magazine is published throughout the nascar season and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography for a little behind the scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. Wasn't so, the first steel they built, I bet. No, <laughs> no, you know, you, I think they were, They had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. <laughs> Thought he was doing pretty good and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappear but then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh and comes back towards him and it, it, as he said it was a game of chicken and i was a chicken and so he ran <laughs> off the boat and actually he was the guy who who caught junior johnson at his daddy still when junior got tangled up in a in a barbed wire fence so check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, The Scene Bolt Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history.
1: He and Curtis Turner were big buddies, and it was something else to go out with them. You always wondered whether you were going to make it back. Rumpy, I think you probably need to do something else for a hobby. He says, it's too far gone. It's early beer can
2: the day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past as today. We don't have any future. Hello everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And
0: my name is Rick Houston and welcome to the scene vault podcast. Steve, Mike Polkey is one of our newest Patreon supporters. And I had reached out to him about the pronunciation of his last name. I try to get it right when we mentioned all our new supporters on the podcast. And I didn't hear back from him before we recorded the show the week that he signed up, but I actually got his name right. And evidently he was impressed by that. So he sent me another message this week and he upped the ante a little bit. He said that if I could pronounce the name of a certain type of food, that he enjoys and the town in which there's a really good place that serves this food, he would up his support on Patreon to $10 a month.
2: Well, I'll bet you, you went looking for that food.
0: <laughs> well, number <laughs> one, I'm not going to back down from a challenge and I'm certainly not going to back down from a challenge about how to pronounce a food. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so here goes. All right. Kudigy is, according to Wikipedia, a spicy Italian sausage that is seasoned with sweet spices that can be bought in links or served in a sandwich on a long, hard roll, often with mozzarella cheese and tomato sauce. Now, mozzarella cheese, sign me up.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I think you described an Italian sausage hoagie. That's what it is, isn't it? It's a Kudigy hoagie. All right, Kudigy. Down here is a, either a hoagie or a sub.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know why exactly, but Kootigi is served primarily in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So it's a Upper thing. And this is the other part of Mike Polkey's challenge. There's a place in Ishpaming, Michigan, that's in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, that has a really good Kootigi. So go get your Kootigee in Ishpeming. Oh, how's that? Say that 10 like, times fast. Yeah. Sounds like pig Latin. <laughs> Steve, maybe we can record the podcast one day on location at this place in Ishpeming and have us some Kootigee with Mike Polkey while we're at it.
2: You know, I agree with you, Rick. And I really now, after all we've gone through with the pronunciations, I got to try this stuff. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I just want to try it just for the heck of it. Forget my walking. (laughs) Forget my weight loss challenge. I want some (laughs) Kudagi. Steve, this week, we are going to share what will be the first in a three-part interview that you and I did with Humpy Wheeler at his home there in Charlotte. Now, Steve, first of all, I think you were pretty surprised to find out where he lives. He lives, what, maybe a
2: mile from you? About that far. I tell you. I didn't really know where Humpy lived. I thought for a long time he lived out at Lake Norman. You know, that's where a lot of the NASCAR people do live today. And I know he had a place on Baldhead Island, I think down in South Carolina, but I didn't know he lived just walking. This is, for me. That was pretty cool. Well,
0: Steve, when you and I met and drove over to his house, it was literally just right around the corner. I mean, it wasn't yeah. very far at all, it was a mile at the most, I think.
2: No, it's very close, and uh, it's a very nice home, as you might imagine. Humpy's got a garage that's full of car parts and machinery that he uses to restore old race cars. And I asked him, I said, "Well, Humpy, when you restore a car, what do you do it?" And he said, "Look at it. <laughs> that's <all he> <laughs> well,
0: to me, the moral of that story is. You and Humpy are living on that upper management money, and I'm living on that Bush series editor money.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I am not living at Humpy's
0: level, I can assure you. (laughs) Steve, then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the June 9th, 1977 issue of Grand National Scene. Steve, that was just the third issue of Grand National Scene
2: ever. Uh, That's right. I think it started in April of that year. Yes,
0: very, very early in its run. Richard Petty had dominated the World 600 at Charlotte, where Humpy had worked so long and so successfully. And Richard collected a cool $69,550 for his efforts that day. And Steve, at that point, that was the largest winner's share in NASCAR history. That was a huge sum
2: back then. Yeah, huge for back then.
0: Gene Granger had an awesome feature on David Pearson in this issue, and David also finished a distant second to Richard in the 600. For 12 pages, it's a pretty packed issue.
2: I'm sure it was. Gene Granger back at that time was the rock at grand national scene. He did a lot of work for pub- publication. He was also the motorsports writer in Spartanburg, South Carolina. That's what his regular job was, and he was a great historian of the sport.
0: Steve, this week we have new Patreon support from Paul Kimna, and I'm just going to go ahead and say we have increased support from our Kootigy-loving friend of ours, Mike Polkey. <laughs>
2: and a Kootigy
0: to you, Mike. <laughs> so, Mike, fork it over, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Listeners, if you can, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal. Every little bit helps, and I say that every week, but it's the truth. Every little bit helps, and it helps us to do what we love to do, and that's to preserve NASCAR history. And I think that's what we're doing here on the show. So if you can help us out on a monthly basis, you can do that at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Humpy, first of all, how did you get the nickname Humpy?
1: (laughs) Well, my father was a guard on the Red Grange, Illinois team back in the 20s. They caught him smoking camel cigarettes. And uh, his coach uh, made him run around the field for 30 minutes before practice that year. And so his teammates started calling him Humpy because of the camel cigarettes and the humps on the camel. (laughs) So um, he was a coach, and you can't get rid of nicknames in sports. And so I came along, and I was always tagging along with him, and they started calling me Little Humpy, and it stuck. So when Howard A. Wheeler III was born, my son, we immediately nicknamed him Trip, thus ending Humpy.
2: (laughs) You played college football with Jim Hunter. What do you I remember did. about that experience?
1: Uh, he, was, uh, he was hard to tackle because he was so skinny. Uh, if he hit you with, a, uh, with his elbow, it'd cut you. <laughs> <laughs> he, was good. he was good, very fast, and a good football player. I enjoyed being with him.
0: Now, you also raced some. How serious an effort was that, or was that just something to do on the weekends?
1: something to do on the weekends, and I wanted to get it out of my system, and I was down in Sumter, and we had a big wreck, and a, a car on top of me, I didn't know who it was, but the fuel was coming down in my car, and I was trying to get out, and finally the driver of the car got out, and it was no other than, none other than Cale Yarborough, <laughs> and he looked at me, of course, we'd known each other forever, he said, Humpy? I think you probably need to do something else for a (laughs) hobby. (laughs) That's all it took.
2: (laughs) How did boxing come into the picture?
1: Well, I was born in Belmont, North Carolina, and that was about as rough a town as you could get. I mean, it was brutally rough. And uh, so uh, to survive, you had to know how to fight. fight. And... uh, so Belmont had a great boxing team. Uh, this was back in the 50s when there were 200 boxing clubs in the two Carolinas, and because people, a lot of people, would play basketball in the winter because a lot, a lot of the high schools, uh, you couldn't shoot a jump shot because the ceiling was too low. <laughs> you had to get under the basket. So anyway, there's a lot of boxing, and. Um, so i just started it and i liked contact and i loved it and um, i wanted to go to the olympics but there was a guy in my way named cassius clay <laughs> <laughs> i saw him fight i was supposed to fight him one time i saw him fight as an amateur on a card i was on and i thought she will. I get ready to hit him. He's going to hit me four times as fast as he is. <laughs> <laughs> Let me move on to something else.
0: <laughs> now, after college, how did you wind up working with Firestone in NASCAR?
1: Well, when I got out of school, I went to work for uh, WBTV, of, uh, Charlotte Station. And um, uh, I wanted to do something else, too. I had too much time on my hands, so... I, uh, Marvin Panch was running this great little high bank quarter mile uh, in Gastonia, North Carolina and um, he wasn't doing well so I uh, uh, bought the track from him uh, with borrowed money and uh, started racing over there and I changed the, what we were doing from expensive race cars to really cheapos kind of jalopies and people loved it because you know, it was a crash a minute, and um, we had we charged too much. We charged a dollar and a half to get in, <laughs> and these were all mill workers, you know, and so uh, that worked out real well. But we had to close it up because it was too close to the hospital, etc etc So I'm sitting there kind of pondering what to do, and uh, this friend of mine was the PR. Manager for Firestone Racing, and he left. And I called him. I said, "Well, who's going to take your place?" He says, "You are." <laughs> <laughs> he says, "Get up here." He says, "We've been. I've been trying to find somebody." So I went up there, and they hired me in uh, uh, 1964, January. I went to work for him. The first place I went was Riverside, California. Oh man! Wow! And. I was the only Southern guy there, and um, the rest of it you know, were West Coast writers. And Joe Weatherly got killed that day. Mm. And so people calling me wanted me to do a story on it, so I did. And um, uh, he was a good friend of mine, and I hated to see what everybody did because he was so popular. But uh, I did the story from out there, and, um, that kind of got us going. I did not
0: know that you knew Joe Weatherly. What kind of guy was he?
1: <laughs> well, he was funny, really funny. Had his red face, Irishman. And he had a big scar that ran down his side of his uh, face from a motorcycle wreck. He was a motorcycle racer before he got into cars. And... Uh, People liked him, and he was joking all the time, and uh, he and Curtis Turner were big buddies, and it was something else to go out with them. You always wondered whether you were gonna make it back. (laughs) I remember I flew down to Daytona with Turner one time, and Weatherly was in the back. Turner wanted me to sit in the co-pilot seat, because I knew a little bit about flying. And he said, Pops, called everybody Pops. Not to remember anybody's name. He said, uh, "Hand me that map down there on the floor." I looked down the floor and it was a Gulf highway map. A <laughs> highway map. I don't matter pick it up. Find me 301. <laughs> <laughs> and we I found it and I, he's looking at it and he said, "That's perfect." He, he, he veered off to the left and next thing you know we were on Highway 301 and followed it all the way to Daytona <laughs> <laughs> you know that was before all this GPS and yeah stuff
2: and people did what they had to do to get places now I, let me see if I got the timing wrong you, you went to work for Firestone right after college now somewhere along the line you were promoting races at Robinwood is that correct? I did that before I went to Firestone. That's what I want to know. And then
1: after I left Firestone, because I got out of racing, um, I um, uh, started, I, uh, I got to Concord Speedway and I ran it for a couple of years. And uh, then the opportunity came up to uh, uh, go to Charlotte, because Bruton and I had been friends forever we were actually rival promoters that didn't try to kill each other (laughs) at one time. It was rough back then, folks. And uh, so he asked me if I would consider it and uh, we talked and talked and he was living in Illinois at the time. And so that led to me finally said, yeah, I'll take a look at it. I went out there and looked at it. And you know, it had been built in the first race in 1960. Well, they never even came close to finishing it. The only asphalt on the place was Pit Road at the racetrack. All the rest of it was dirt roads and parking and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I remember I got this famous designer out there called Jack Pennis. And he spent three days walking the whole place and uh he came back because i wanted him to come up with some graphic stuff that we could do and uh, i said well what do you think jack he says impossible what do you mean i said you you've done all kind of crazy things marine land and land of oz etc what 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 what's wrong he says it's too far gone It's early beer can. (laughs) And I thought, oh, my God.
0: Uh, Humpy, you were at Charlotte in the early 1970s, and that was before NASCAR had really hit its growth spurt. What kinds of challenges did you face in promoting races there in those early days?
1: Well, uh, getting publicity was the big thing because a lot of your um, media didn't regard racing as a sport so we had to convince them of that and that was a big challenge the other challenge of course was improving the facility and that was tough because we we didn't have any money (laughs) and uh... so uh, uh... the challenge was getting more people in the grandstand and i knew that if we could spiff the place up that uh... that would help quite a bit and uh... Now, that was back in the days when uh, RJR, through Winston, was giving people red and white paint yeah. and uh, to kind of spiff the track up. Well, I didn't like that. So I got the paint from them. I traded the red in for brown, and we made it tan. <laughs> so I painted everything tan to subdue it, to get away from the early beer camp. Well, RJR went nuts. Because <laughs> they wanted red and white because of their, their brand. And uh, I finally got over that. But uh, there were uh, so many challenges because, again, we didn't have any money. I remember going up to uh, a nuclear auction in Tennessee. They were closing the dam. And, uh, you know, they overbuild everything when they build a nuclear facility. And so I went up there, had very little money and um, so checked in with auctioneer and uh, here, here we come and they got some great stuff. Now we needed pipe big time to drain the place. And uh, so you now I found some fabulous pipe there. And uh, it ended up selling for 5 cents a foot, less than say Lowe's or, wherever, and um, I mean it was cheap so I bought $18,000 worth of it with no money and then down the rest of the day, they were auctioned off a of stainless steel 50,000 gallon water tank. We needed that because we, we were having to depend on wells and uh, so the guy that wanted it so bad, he I, I got to know him for out. He had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and here comes the stainless steel tank. And I bought was really what it was a $200,000 stainless steel tank for $3,000. <laughs> <laughs> he came back went berserk. And he says, "Well, I, I needed that tank bad. I got to have it." And I didn't want it to disassemble that tank and have to haul it to Charlotte I knew that would cost us a lot of money so I sold him the tank for enough to pay for the pipe (laughs) and and, uh, so he never did know what I paid for that pipe (laughs) I mean that tank so we had to do so many things like that just to get from one deal to another I remember a long term loan we couldn't borrow money At the time, a long term loan was for the purse. NASCAR demanded the purse on Wednesday of race week. So I'd borrow the seven, eight hundred thousand, whatever it was, from the bank Wednesday, uh, send a draft down to NASCAR, and then we had to pay it back Monday. (laughs) Hopefully, enough people showed up that we'd have enough extra to pay the purse. Those were really, really challenges. And um, finally, uh, we got to, to the point where uh, uh, my friend, Bruton Smith, he, <laughs> he uh, came up with the idea of, of um, trying to get what's now Bank of America involved. And he knew Luther Hodges, and Luther was chairman of the bank then. And so finally, one day, Bank of America said, they would loan us the astonishing amount of $2.2 million for a grandstand addition and, and, and the press box and some sweets. And that really got us going there because it was a, it kinda put Charlotte up there where very few other people had
2: Feared to go because I didn't have any money either. <laughs> <laughs> what was your working relationship with Ruth like? How was
1: that? Oh my gosh, it was something else. Uh, we uh, we became very good friends for thirty five years, and we talked almost every day, uh, sometimes at length, about, this, about about the speedway or whatever. And so, um, but at the same time, his son Marcus was coming along and Marcus worked for me for a number of years and a really nice, nice guy. And I knew that, you know, I was up there nearly 70 and that uh, uh, he wanted Marcus to run the Speedway after I left. So at 70, I had had a, long hard road out there. I mean it was it was a tough deal and I'd had a I had no more reason to work. And so I told Bruton, I said, I'm like to finish out this year and go on. And so we did. But at the same time we kinda got into crosshairs. You know, the end of anything is not fun and whatever it is, a marriage, a, a long-term relationship with somebody, business, etc And so it, it ended up kind of on a sour note with Bruton and I. But we've gotten together again and are good friends and I go see him all the time and uh, we go places together so, uh, it's good to, uh, to, that we got over all that stuff. That happens with partners. I know uh, with uh, Flat and Scruggs, my favorite bluegrass man, <laughs> uh, they had a split. I mean, these two guys were so good together, and yet they split. And uh, so I talked to Lester Flat about that because I love the way he plays the banjo. And he said, well, we, we didn't speak for 10 years. And he said, uh, he was in the hospital and I went to visit him and it was just like old times. And that's the best thing I ever did in my life. So it's good to make up when you have a problem with somebody and usually it's over nothing.
0: As good as you were at coming up with promotional ideas, there had to be a few that didn't work out quite as well as you might have liked. Is there one or two that stands out to you that maybe you would like to have another chance
1: at? Oh, yeah. Uh, Particularly the largest band gathering. I got into this (laughs) Guinness Book of Records trying to find out something that we could do at the Speedway. And I found out the largest gathering of the largest band gather was somewhere in Europe, and it was 4,000 people. I said, "Well, we'll get 5,000." So it was for the October race. So I contacted every high school and college in five states, telling them we'll put them up for the race, etc., but we want them to be part of a world record. And gosh, the response we got is unreal. So come to race day. Now it's October. It's usually cool. Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) We had a heat wave in Charlotte. And uh, so we got all these band members over there on the back stretch, and they're going to walk all the way around to the front stretch. Bad decision. (laughs) And um, so the, the temperature has climbed up to 88, and the humidity is... So bad that you, you water would drip off your nose, and so here they are in their wool uniforms <laughs> marching toward the front stretch. And every once in a while, one would fall. <laughs> we got in the front stretch, and they start playing as a group, which we broke the record for about 10 minutes, <laughs> and then. They start really falling <laughs> and Jay Howard wonderful free race guy for us Jay said well what, what, what do you want to do I said the show goes on <laughs> about 30 of them hit the deck then oh, God. and he looked at me and I said the show goes off and <laughs> 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 so we canceled it thank God we probably Killed some of those poor kids. Fortunately, we had a, a good cadre of nurses and stuff there, so they, they were all treated for heat exhaustion and so forth. But uh, who would have ever thought in October it would have gotten that hot? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I'm just going to ask... Was there anything about Humpy's body language during this interview that stood out to you?
2: Well, he was very relaxed. The other thing that I noticed, and Humpy's always been this way. When he starts talking about a subject they know something about, he places a smile, notice that he smiles while he talks. So yep. he really enjoys telling these tales.
0: Normally when we do an interview, we're sitting across some sort of table facing each other, but this time. We were set up for the interview in Humpy's study, and we were all sitting across the room from each other in different corners of the room. I was in a chair in one corner. You were across the room on a couch, and he had a chair in front of his just absolutely beautiful bookcases. And we also had the video camera for our YouTube channel set up between me and you. And I don't know. It may have just been me. But let's just say that it seemed to me like he was playing to that video camera, (laughs) looking at it instead of
2: us. (laughs) He's done this before. He's been in front of cameras many times. So he knows how to act when the camera is on. He can play it up very well. And he did.
0: Steve, what is your earliest memory of Humpy?
2: I'm going to say it's back in 1975, I think. Uh, Bruton Smith had taken over the speedway from Richard Howard, and Bruton had announced these great plans for the track, which included condominiums that would be for sale to anyone who wanted to live there. Nobody had ever heard of condominiums at a racetrack. So I ended up going down to the speedway, and I ran into Bruton and Humphrey in a trailer outside the track while construction was going on. And we had a good discussion about what Bruton was trying to do at the speedway and how Humpy, as the new president, was going to help him. I think that's the first time I ever talked to both of them.
0: So, Steve, let me ask you this question. Who was there first? Was Humpy there before Bruton? Did he start work at Charlotte with Richard Howard? Or did Bruton bring him along?
2: I think Bruton brought Humpy along. Okay. That's the first time any ever saw Humpy is when Bruton finally took over the track.
0: One of the things that fascinates me the most about guests like Humpy is the number of almost mythological figures throughout the sports history that they have come into contact with. It really got my attention when Humpy said that he had been friends with Joe Weatherly and Curtis Turner. Now he said that he had, <laughs> he said that he would go out with them and he would wonder if he was ever going to make it back. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, with those two, I can understand that feeling. It was <laughs> Joe that always said something like, uh, uh, another party starting up in about 15 minutes,
0: <laughs> another party Well, the one that he's in is just now ended. So another one's going to start <laughs> in 15 minutes. And that being said, one of the very best things about interviewing a person like Humpy is that he's a bridge to a previous era of NASCAR that you and I didn't experience like we did the late 1970s, the eighties and the nineties. I mean, Curtis Turner and Joe weatherly that even predates your time in the
2: sport. i started out as a young man. And what he was doing was running races at short tracks that he ran. And he went from there to working for Firestone, which was big in NASCAR at the time. So naturally he was in a position to be in contact with those guys of his era and get to know them well.
0: Again, I think one of the fascinating things is is that we know the names like Joe Weatherly and Curtis Turner and Fireball Roberts and Fred Lorenzen and and guys like that, but we didn't know the people. We didn't know them personally,
2: and there is a huge difference there. Steve, what year did you first cover a race at Charlotte? I'm thinking it was somewhere around 74 or 75, you know, we go reach back that part. It's kind of hard to remember exactly, but it was around that time and okay. the speedway back then, I anticipate what you're going to ask the speedway back then was nothing. I mean, nothing like it is now, as a matter of fact, the changes started coming about when Bruton took over. Bruton has a reputation for changing tracks much for the better. As he acquires them. That's exactly what he did in Charlotte. And it started with the new press box and condominiums of all things back in the you know mid-70s. And it went from there.
0: What do you mean you anticipate my next question? It's right there in the notes. <laughs> 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 it says, What kind of changes did you see over the years there? Well, what <laughs> do you have to tell that? <laughs> don't, don't tell these people that you have some kind of ESPN. There's <laughs> ESPN. <laughs> Steve, in all seriousness, here's how much of a challenge there was in renovating the place. Humpy said that he had a designer come out and look at the grounds there at Charlotte. And the guy told him that it was going to be impossible because the place was too far gone. He said that it was early beer can.
2: (laughs) Well, he basically was right. Uh, not much had been done to the track over the years, and it was not in the best of shape, no question about it. Uh, but the idea that Bruton and Humpy had was no way we can make this track succeed unless we improve the facilities and the amenities. They had to spend money to make money.
0: Well, this is how hard they had to scramble and scrounge and try to make ends meet. Humpy said that he went to an auction and needed a bunch of drain pots. To drain the place when it rained. And he said that he got $18,000 worth at five cents a foot. <laughs> That's a lot of pipe and a stainless steel 50,000 gallon water tank for $3,000. And he said that this thing was, what did he say? I think he said like $200,000 or something like that, some kind of crazy figure. Yeah. And he turns around immediately from making that transaction. And another guy who is at this auction had really, really wanted that tank. So Humpy turns right around and sells this tank after paying $3,000 for it. And he sells it to this other guy for enough to pay for the pipe.
2: (laughs) That's called Wheeler dealer. (laughs) Humpy Wheeler (laughs) dealer.
0: (laughs) Humpy Wheeler dealer. Then he said that he would borrow the money from the bank to pay the purse for that weekend's NASCAR race on Wednesday and hope and hope to make enough money that weekend during the races to pay it back on Monday.
2: That's the way that Charlotte operated. It. it always relied on good turnouts and good ticket sales to pay its bills. It was in debt. No question about it. That's the way it operated that back then before Bruton started his changes.
0: Charlotte finally did get to the point where it could borrow what Humpy called the astounding Amount of $2.2 million to build grandstands, the press box, and the suites that made Charlotte at least begin to look like the Charlotte that we now know today. The press box was opened in 1978, and I always thought that it was so cool that there was a display in the press box that featured a photo, if I remember correctly, of you and Higgins at the grand opening of that press box. Wasn't there even a typewriter? on display
2: well let me tell you how that worked humpy turned everybody in the press loose in the old press box and said tear it down <laughs> well we got the nuts in there we had sledgehammers we were kicking in walls beating on typewriters that's one of those typewriters that ended up being a display pretty much one i pounded on and, and there was a piece of paper in that typewriter and, and typed on that piece of paper were the words more or less like this uh Oh man, they're beating me to death. I can't stand this anymore. wait a minute. Here comes Steve Wade and Tom Higgins. Oh my, oh my. (laughs) And that, that remained on display in the press box for a long time, along with several other things, You showed us guys all tearing down that press box. That was a fun evening.
0: Steve, how big a difference was there in that press box and some of the ones that you had worked in earlier in your career?
2: Well, the difference was, number one, but the new press box was very, very usable for the media. Everything you needed was there. Outlets that you could reach outlets, you know, telephones, obviously typewriters back then, a great view of the track right near the start-finish line, and that, compared to several of the others, was a tremendous improvement. Most of them, not all, most of them were just uh, boxes in the sky, you know, and very small, and not very friendly for use.
0: One of the things I love so much about covering the Bush series for Winston Cup scene was that I got to go to some press boxes that were a throwback to the pre-Charlotte type press boxes, Milwaukee in particular. There (laughs) basically was no press box at Milwaukee. All it was was open air. It basically hung off the front of the awning at Milwaukee. It obviously was not Air conditioned or anything like that. And when we went to Milwaukee, you wouldn't think of a place like that up north being very hot. But when we went there in the summer, it was blazing hot and very humid and just absolutely miserable conditions. And right next to the quote unquote press box was the NASCAR tower. (laughs) And so John Darby and Kevin Triplett and Steve O'Donnell would be in the NASCAR tower and they were enclosed in air-conditioned and everything, and they would see me sitting there looking miserable and about half-passed out and everything and sweating to death, and they would <laughs> they would knock on the window, and I'd look over, and they were all with their arms across their chest shivering and everything, and <laughs> yeah, okay. I communicated with sign which- language.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I can imagine. Most of the press boxes on the NASCAR Winston Cup Series were pretty much like that, except Martinsville. Yeah. Martinsville it in the fourth turn, Earlsville, very nice, air conditioned press box in the fourth turn.
0: Steve, how much of that renovation effort? How much of that was Humpy, and how much of it was Bruton, or how much of that was actually a true team effort?
2: I think basically it was a team effort. I credit Bruton with having the uh, wherewithal. By that I mean finances and necessary means to make these ideas come true. I created Humpy with the man taking it on the creative side and saying, okay, this is what we need to do. I will carry out what you think we should do, Bruton. So basically one man, you know, obviously controlled it. The other man, I think made everything work. That's what I call a team effort.
0: Maybe one guy came up with ideas and the other guy paid for it.
2: <laughs> That's a nice way of saying that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> with that being said, Humpy and Bruton did get spun out with each other. Toward the end of Humpy's tenure at Charlotte, Marcus Smith, Bruton's son was coming along, and I don't know how much that played into it. I, I wasn't there, so I don't know, but Humpy did allude to that. And the long and short of it, though, was the fact that they've evidently mended
2: their fences now. Yeah, that's apparently the true case. Humpy and uh, Bruton did have pretty much of a falling out. Uh, what led to that, I really don't know, except I do know that Humpy did, had no idea that Bruton was building a dragway across from the speedway. And I learned about that. I said to myself, well, now that there is a breakdown in communication right here. And that is not good.
0: What we have here is a failure. To commu- to <laughs> <laughs> Here's another question for you. What was your favorite Humpy Wheeler promotion of all time? And I mean, you can't talk about Humpy Wheeler and not talk about some of the promotions that he had at Charlotte. I mean, there were good ones. There were bad ones. There were in between ones, but it was always a show.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Humpy was famous for his pre-race shows. He was of the belief that a fan comes to a race, don't want to sit there in the quiet for an hour or two or before the race and have nothing to do. Let's give them some entertainment. Well, he went everywhere and anything to get that entertainment. You had uh, what G- uh, Jimmy the Flying Greek who took a school bus and jumped that thing off a ramp. Yeah. You, had, uh, you had boxing matches. But my favorite was the fact that Humpy started being known to the media as the P.T. Barnum of racing. Well, he took that nickname, P.T. Barnum, and made himself the real P.T. Barnum. He brought a circus into Charlotte Motor Speedway as a pre-race show, an entire, with elephants and everything. I thought that was pretty darn intelligent.
0: I don't know if it was a Humpy Wheeler deal or a Charlotte deal or a NASA deal or whatever, but of course, my favorite Charlotte event of all time would have had to have been the year that the command to fire engines was given by astronauts John Casper and Kurt Brown, The commander and pilot of STS-77 in May of 1996. They did that for the Coca-Cola 600 that year, and they were on orbit. They were in space. They were circling the earth at 17,500 miles an hour.
1: On this American holiday weekend, there is a group of men circling the earth 180 miles above us in space shuttle Endeavour. Gentlemen, it is an honor for all of us here at the Charlotte Motor Speedway, to have you as a part of this Memorial Day tradition. And now may I introduce the crew of the Space Shuttle Endeavour as they join me in the start of this race. Good day from the Space Shuttle Endeavour and shuttle mission STS-77. I'm shuttle pilot Kurt Brown from Elizabeth Town, North Carolina. And at this moment, my crewmates and I are orbiting Earth at an altitude of approximately 180 miles. We'd like to take a moment to wish a happy Memorial Day to all the NASCAR racing fans attending the Charlotte 600. NASA and the entire crew would wish you all a very safe race. And with that, it's now race time. So, gentlemen, start Start your your engines! engines.
0: You heard it there. Bruton Smith was there, and he was talking to the astronauts, and he was doing the pre-race show and all that. and. When the crew of STS 77, when John and Kurt went to actually give the command to fire engines, Bruton talked over them. he yelled <laughs> over them, and you could not hear a word that John and Kurt said from on orbit. So Bruton get out of the way, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, that was one stunt that went wrong, but obviously there were others that didn't go quite as well as Humpy might've hoped. And he did talk about the time that he attempted to set the Guinness Book of World Records mark for the largest marching band in history. And there was only one problem. This was in October. And so you kind of think that the weather's going to be halfway cold, But evidently, it was not. Evidently, it was just hot and toasty and humid and muggy. And
2: (laughs) kid after
0: kid started falling out due to heat exhaustion.
2: (laughs) Poor guys. You got to feel for them out there in those heavy uniforms. All standing side by side, pretty much well cramped, even though they were entire infield. And the heat is just blazing down on them, and they have no chance to take any kind of break whatsoever. So they just started dropping like flies. I I'm giggling now, but that, that wasn't very funny at the time.
0: Steve, here's a note for you. Jeannie was a part of that marching band. You're
2: kidding me. I didn't know that.
0: <laughs> no, she was she was in the marching band at Star Mount High School. And she remembered, obviously, it being very hot, very muggy. According to her, she said that the band members were allowed to just kind of roam the infield freely. She said that they got to go through the garage without really? any glasses or anything. And so being fairly close to where Junior Johnson's shop was, a lot of them knew Junior Johnson. So they went up to him and talked to him and all that. But she said that once they got back to the bus, ah. Eh, they were pretty wilted. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, the June 9th, 1977 issue of Grand National Scene carried coverage of that year's world 600 at Charlotte. And there was $40,000 in lap money up for grabs in that year's edition of that race with $5,000 going to the driver who led the most laps during each of the event's eight 50-lap segments. Now, this was a deal where you didn't have to lead the 50th lap or the 100th lap or the 150th lap. This was a deal where you had to lead the most laps out of each of those 50-lap segments.
2: And that was something new that Speedway put up there. That was something new. Humpy Weir once asked me, he said, what do you think motivates a driver more than anything else and money. i instantly say money yeah money <laughs> so bruton started uh, bruton and humpy started devising ways to make more money available at charlotte than any other track that way they would have a guaranteed full field of cars because drivers wanted that money and you know what when that many drivers we're going to go up to that many dollars that made it a good promotion. And that meant more people are going to come to track to see what happens.
0: Here's how good a day that Richard Petty had that day of that $40,000. Richard collected $35,000 of it. So he was on the mark that day. He led 311 of the events, 400 laps, and he beat David Pearson to the finish by 30.8 seconds. That was a nail biter. Right. Come on, man. That was a nail biter. Oh, yeah.
2: Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> Richard said, if there hadn't been so many caution flags, I could have been a lap ahead. It was the best the car ran in a long, long time. And Steve, I was fascinated by the fact that that one two sentence quote was the only quote in the race lead. And this is how much race reporting has changed over time. That race lead was written by publisher Rob Griggs. He and Gary McCready started Grand National Scene. It was based in Alabama at the time. But that one quote was the only quote in the race lead, and the rest of the story was basically a running summary of what took place that day. There was a run in order before and after the caution. There was Richard and David were their only drivers on the lead lap by lap 260. On lap 315, Carol Yarbrough pitted the final green flag pit stops. I think that's a function of the fact that at that time, it was not possible for fans to watch live NASCAR events on television from start to finish. So what Rob was doing was taking readers through the event himself and writing it
2: as it went along. That's exactly how you had to do it back then. You hit the nail on the head. Fans did not have the opportunity to watch it on TV. They could listen on some radio stations, but not a whole lot. So it was newspapers' job to report the race as it unfolded. To give the readers a full knowledge of how that race was conducted and why it ended the way it did.
0: Today, that kind of race lead would look maybe a little bit dry or stale or whatever, but that was the way that things were written back then. Nobody writes it that way.
2: That's right. Nobody writes it that way. The challenge for a newspaper which you know, daily newspapers are struggling. The challenge for the newspapers is to tell a story of the race breaks away from the actual what we call play by play. You have to basically featurize your lead story.
0: As time went by and television came into the picture, readers of Scene could see for themselves what had happened during a race. And a race lead became a little bit more of an analysis of a race, why things happened the way that they did, as opposed to simply what happened.
2: And there was also another adage that I followed. I was told by guys like Dick Thompson, the great PR man at Martinville Speedway race, fans know who won the race. And now with television and everything, they also know how he run the race. Why don't you tell them something about this driver and his team that they don't know that makes the story.
0: I always tended to use a lot of quotes in my stories because I felt it was more important For readers to hear from the actual participants rather than me blathering on about what I thought had happened. So that was just my style. I just used a lot of quotes and I still do to this day.
2: Well, that's a very good style to have. You're exactly right. Let their drivers tell the story. This was also
0: the 62nd time that Richard and David had finished one, two, and it would take place just one more time over the course of their careers. Steve, can you tell me? when Richard and David's, or David and Richard's final 1-2 finish took place? And I intentionally did not include the answer in the notes. <laughs>
2: well, <laughs> since you intentionally did that, I'm going to intentionally tell you, I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Steve, how crazy is this? It took place the very next race when Richard beat David to the finish line at Riverside.
2: Really? I did not know that. Yes, sir.
0: Like it was when Jeannie and her bandmates had all their troubles and issues at Charlotte. It was very hot and very humid that weekend. And David Pearson said after the race, I don't know if the heat got to me worse or if Petty got to me worse. I know two things. I got hot and I got beat. Petty flat put it on us. As for the extra 100 miles, it didn't make any difference. It was just as hot the first 10 laps as it was the last 10. David later added, at one time during the race, I thought I could run with Richard. I guess he got to thinking about those laps that pay money, and he went off and left me. There's no way I'm satisfied with second. I came down here to win, so how can I be happy finishing second? Someone told me I won more than $38,000, and that makes me feel a lot better, but that still ain't first and that is what it means to be david pearson
2: (laughs) that's right all he wanted was to win just like most of the great drivers do
0: several drivers were using what they called a cool hat which was evidently a special helmet piped with cold water to help relieve the heat benny parsons had one but it didn't help too much
2: let me tell you something about that cool hat when it worked, it was a nice thing for the drivers to have. They welcomed it. But here's yes, the problem. If that cool water <laughs> turned to hot water. Yes, sir. Oh, oh man. You were, <laughs> you were being boiled.
0: If it worked, it worked
2: well. If it didn't, it sucked. <laughs> That's about
0: it. <laughs> Benny said, I got a terrible headache, and I knew that Bobby Allison was sitting in the garage area. Bobby had fallen out of the race. I told Jake Elder to grab him before someone else did. About that time, I started getting sick to my stomach. I guess it was coming from the headache. Bobby checked to see if Donnie was all right, and when they told him he was, he came over to my pits. Just about the time he got there, the caution flag came out. Gosh, I was glad to see that caution.
2: You know, I bet he was. He was (laughs) suffering.
0: Man, Steve, I know how badly I hate to be hot. I can't stand to be hot and humid and muggy and everything. But to be inside of one of those race cars on a miserable day like that, and what Benny must've been going through and his cool helmet working, not working or whatever, and him get to feeling bad, man, I I don't see how anybody could do something like
2: that. No, that has got to be tough on the driver. Just think of the misery it causes them physically and you know, the a driver like Benny will not get out of a car unless he absolutely has to. And when he does, you know he's in bad shape.
0: Donnie did wind up driving in relief of Benny, and he took the car to a third-place finish. But he said after the race, you know something? It got hot out there. I sure would like to have a cool beer right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm sure Donnie was not alone in that sentiment.
0: <laughs> Kel Yarborough qualified third but had an extremely tough day and finished 24th. One of only three times in 1977 that he wound up out of the top 10. One of only three times.
2: Well, he was on his way to his second championship in a row with Junior Johnson.
0: And we did talk about his 1977 when we uh, talked to Jeff Hammond and just how crazy successful that season was. But Charlotte, he wasn't too good at Charlotte. Kel said, I wasn't handling all day. I used up all four lanes and both shoulders. One time, I had to use the wall to straighten up. <laughs>
2: <laughs> sort of like Darlington. With
0: the in Later, Kel said of the weather, and Steve, just listen to this. Just listen. I knew it was going to be hot. The cool hat helped a lot, but I brought me some smelling salts to sniff
2: on during the caution flag.
0: <laughs> smelling salts,
2: Steve. <laughs> How about that? Isn't that crazy? I'm telling you, you go to any length, you know, to survive in a race car in the heat. Smelling salts.
0: I handed Buddy Baker some, and you should have seen him. He told me he didn't want any more of that (laughs) stuff. (laughs) Buddy eventually wound up fifth, three laps down. And he said after the race, I would like to hear some cats say it wasn't tough out there today. We didn't find out until the last part of the race what our trouble was. The car just wasn't set up right. We didn't have the right RPM and right setup. I think I wore blisters on my hands, feet, and tail. (laughs) (laughs) GC Spencer finished 20th and collected $2,560 for his efforts. And he said, I didn't make enough money today to get into a good poker game. During one of my pit stops, I could have started a game. I was in the pits long enough. (laughs) And finally, Dick Brooks was eighth. I sure didn't need any diet to lose weight today. Maybe I can eat about five times tomorrow, and I still won't be back to where I was before the race.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Dick and GC had a very colorful way of expressing their opinions. That's for sure.
0: (laughs) Steve, I texted you about this, and you were there, and you do have a story about Elizabeth Taylor, who was the grand marshal for this event. And she was there with her husband at the time, John Warner. What do you remember about her being there that day? Elizabeth Uh Taylor.
2: Okay. Well, Humpy had started a practice of inviting celebrities to come to the races, to do some side and function when they were there. Some of them had been there with Joe Frazier, who sang the national anthem and David Carradine, the actor from Kung Fu. Uh, Darren McGavin, who played uh, Lee Petty in 43, the Petty Story movie. And this time it was Elizabeth Taylor with her husband, Senator John Warner of Virginia. Now, what was the difference that had let John and Elizabeth go through the infield to the pit? There were two people standing on either side of them holding up a rope that was meant to separate them from the crowd rope. Right. Tom would invite people to come under that rope and say hello to Elizabeth and John. Well, he saw me and Tom standing there in the infield. And he said, Steve, you and Tom, come on in here. So we went under the rope and came face to face with Elizabeth Taylor. And Tom said, what's happened, mama?
1: <laughs>
2: oh, man. And I, so I just sort of stood there and smiled <laughs> at her, and and uh, we went back under the rope outside that little area. And I said, "Tom, what in the world are you thinking of?" <laughs> and he said, "Boy, I'm not too sure, but I think her eyes are a little bit bloodshot." <laughs> <laughs> What's and happening,
0: uh, Mama? <laughs> yes,
2: that was my experience with the potato. Okay, we better move along,
0: right <laughs> quick. <laughs> <laughs> Gene Granger had the first of a two-part feature on David Pearson in this issue, and these two stories were the first of many times over the years that Gene wrote about David in the pages of scene. They seemed to have a special friendship, a bond. Steve, why was that? Gene wrote a lot about david was that simply because they were both out of south carolina were they both in spartanburg yeah they were
2: that's okay that that was the key right there the racing writer in spartanburg gene granger if he's any kind of racing writer at all he's got to get to know the nascar folks that are in spartanburg like like david pearson and gene also wrote a lot about bud moore who as you know was based in Spartanburg as well. So it's a situation where when you have these nobles in your own backyard, you got to get to know them.
0: This portion of the story was about David's kind of devilish personality and how he could really kind of give people a hard time when he wanted to. David had bought a Cherokee 180 airplane as far back as 1964, and he wanted to take it out for a spin. And he called one of Dodge's PR reps and just about got this guy talked into it. But then he said for the guy to meet him at the airport and the guy says at the airport, we're flying. And David (laughs) says, yeah, I'm flying us, but don't advertise it. I don't have my license yet. (laughs) That's it trips off right there. No more discussion. I'm done. I don't want to spend time with David Pearson that badly. (laughs) That's that's what I would have said. (laughs) And obviously the PR guy starts to get a little nervous. To which David responds, I can fly. I've already soloed. I'm just supposed to fly with somebody else in the plane with me. I haven't been checked out on instruments, but the weather's good. So I won't need them anyhow.
2: (laughs) Once again, bye, David.
0: (laughs) They take off and David's passenger hasn't shut his door. Oh no. (laughs) David looks at him and goes, well, it won't be much of a fall for you from here. We're not very high up yet. Besides you've got your parachute on, don't you? Oh, you forgot your parachute. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's just say that the story goes on from there. And it wasn't the last of David and this poor guy's issues. When David said that the weather's good, those, yeah, that was almost famous last
2: words, literally. Well, David's not the only one who, uh, flew when he probably shouldn't have talking about instrument rating. There's probably more than one driver who's flown a plane without instrument rating. Dick Brooks told me one time, you know how I find my way, in my airplane down here, to Daytona. I said, no, how do you do that? He said, it's very simple. It's gotta be a good day. Nice, clear weather. If I find interstate 95, I can make it. to Daytona.
0: <laughs> <laughs> And Steve, as I mentioned in the intro. This was just the third issue of Grand National Scene ever. So it's always interesting to go through some of these earliest issues and realize just how humble a beginning the publication had.
2: Very humble. Long before I joined the paper, by the way, but I can remember seeing Rob Griggs in the infield at Teladier hawking, scene, just walking around and trying to sell it to people for it. I don't know how much money it was, but it's pretty cheap. And that's the first time I ever saw anyone associated with scene.
0: Well, the cover price was 50 cents.
2: <laughs> <Bargain>.
0: <laughs> this issue is 12 pages long and maybe half of it was content written by staff members like Rob and Gene. Rob had a column and wrote the race lead. Gene wrote the story on David. There was a sidebar on the Charlotte race that didn't have the byline. That's where the quotes that I had went over came from. And Steve, the rest of the paper was pretty much just press releases. And it was press releases about Talladega getting a new grandstand, the Talladega JC setting a date for the Miss Talladega pageant. There was going to be a no booze section at Atlanta. (laughs) AJ Foyt, who won that year's Indianapolis 500 on the day of the World 600, He was entering the Firecracker 400 at Daytona. Atlanta was getting new walls around the racetrack, that kind of thing. So about half of it was original content written by scene staffers. And the other half was basically canned press releases.
2: That's the way they had to use it in those days. They didn't have a staff big enough to go out and do much else.
0: Again, it was amazing to see this issue as... Compared to the issue, say, that covered Dell Earnhardt's 1998 Daytona 500 win. That was our biggest issue ever. It was 140 pages.
2: Yeah, hey, I remember that. How about that?
0: <laughs> How did we do that, man? Everybody, <laughs> yeah.
2: Every, everybody contributed that one. <laughs>
0: Hey, this is Buckshot Jones, and you're listening
1: to the Scene Vault Podcast. Rick, payback's going to be a bitch.
0: Buckshot, no! So, Steve, we have some more reviews on iTunes. And you got to hear this one. This one's pretty good. Okay. Germanian Wolf. Now, I don't know where that name came from, but Germanian Wolf on iTunes wrote, Rick and Steve are just phenomenal on this podcast. They are accomplishing incredibly important work by capturing the stories from the sport's former personalities. I've been a loyal listener who subscribed to scene from 1987 until the end of its publication and I'm still amazed at what I'm learning each week. Rick seems to be able to personally connect with the guests and get them to open up on subjects without pressing. So many stories behind the stories have been revealed during his interviews. I look forward to listening to this podcast each and every week. Oh, gee. Oh, gosh. Go on. (laughs) Go on. Tell me more.
2: (laughs) Thank you, you, sir.
0: (laughs) So, Germanian Wolf, thank you. I don't know your real name, but I appreciate you. I appreciate that kind of encouragement, and it means a lot. But again, and I say it all the time, it's not about getting a pat on the back. It is about helping to encourage others to listen to our podcast and increase our audience and grow our numbers and whatever. But if you can, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal. If you can't do that, obviously, I understand. I know how crazy these times have been. So if you can't do Patreon, if you can't do PayPal, help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a great written review on iTunes or Podbean or Spreaker or Spotify or whatever you listen to it on. Help us out by giving us a good review and a five-star rating. That would help increase our audience. So again, if you have any questions or comments, email us at sceneball at yahoo.com and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. So, Steve, thank you for being here. I appreciate hey, you,
2: man. I enjoy Rick. Good job, and let's go out and get us a Kuda G.
0: <laughs> in Ishpeming, Michigan, <laughs> in the upper peninsula of Michigan. Adam's <laughs> fixing the lead to go play tennis or whatever. It's awful cold, bub
2: shut that, will you?
0: Hey, Steve. How you doing, man? (laughs) See Bob. Take care of me.